0: Well, if you've been with us, uh, we have been moving along. I think I say the same thing every time, uh, but we are moving along, uh, moving along slow, but we are getting there to our destination, um, which will ultimately be the return of Christ um, and, and all that details. Um, if you have been with us, though, we've been looking at what is called Christ's Passion, And what that is, is a time period when Christ undergoes the sufferings for his people. And that passion begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. We read there that Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizing over our sins and what he's going to do on our behalf. He sweats drops of blood, angels come alongside of him. Uh, to minister to him, and then we move on to the arrest and all those things leading up to the cross. I'm not going to get into the betrayal um, or even um, the trial of Jesus Christ. You can learn about those things, I'm sure, on your own, but uh, we want to consider for our time this evening and as well as maybe the whole month of March is the atonement Right? Because that takes up a big part of our theology of the work of Christ. How are we to think of the atonement or the death of Jesus Christ? And what we did last week is we began by looking at the atonement of who did Jesus Christ die for? A very controversial question, is it not? I mean, you're not going to begin your Christian conversation with a fellow Christian or a non-Christian asking them, who do you think Jesus Christ died for? And then telling them, no, Jesus Christ didn't die for the whole world. He didn't die for every single person, but he died for only a particular few. I don't know if you're going to, be, if you're going to begin a conversation like that, then uh, God bless you. But uh, that's probably not the best way to begin our conversations. But it's an important question because at the heart of the gospel is who did Christ die for? Who did Jesus Christ die Christ died for. And quite frankly, friends, all you have is three options. Either Christ died for all, Christ died for none, or Christ died for some. Now, we can't say that Christ died for all because hell exists. Right? And we can't say that Christ died for none because clearly he's dying for someone. So we must say That Jesus Christ died for some. And when we mean some, we don't mean like just us in this room and then the rest of the world going to hell. But a multitude of people. Look at the stars, God tells Abraham. Look at the sand and the sheets and you will see your descendants. So we want to think that Jesus Christ died for only a few and that is merely all of us in Bakersfield. But he died for people out of every tongue, tribe, and nation. I mean, there's arguments that can even be made that there'll be more people in, hell, in heaven than hell, because Christ will always have the victory. <clears throat> but I know there's many questions, and one question I want to, or objection uh, that might be raised in light of that lesson, you know, Christ only dying for his own is, well, if someone doesn't believe in what is called particular redemption or limited atonement or that Christ only died for a few, is that person going to hell? Is this going to condemn someone to hell? And friends, no. I think that there are doctrines that you can be inconsistent on and still make it to heaven. And I think that this is one of those doctrines where you can be very inconsistent in, but you can still make it to heaven. So can Arminians be in heaven? Yes. Just as Catholics, or some Catholics, will be in heaven, some Anglicans, some um, uh, Eastern Orthodox, you will find those type of Christians in heaven. However, I think the ones that are the most consistent Catholics, the most consistent uh, Eastern Orthodox, I don't know about them, but we aren't to think that every single person in the Catholic Church is going to hell or Eastern Orthodox Church, or Anglican Church, or anything like that. Just like we aren't to think that every single Arminian who's not Reformed is going to hell. No, we will see many of our brothers who are Arminians in heaven, just as, but as R.C. Sproul would say, uh, they're barely getting there. <laughs> no, they're going to barely make it. Um, but we aren't to think that, friends, and I hope that I didn't imply that those people are going to hell. But what I will say is this, that the God of Armenianism is not consistent with Scripture and not worthy to be worshipped. Because what Armenians do, and those who say, no, Christ died for the whole world, is they want to limit the sovereignty of God in order to get more people in heaven. We can't do that. But rather, the God who the Reformed worshipped is not only the biblical God, but also the God who is sovereign and free to do whatever he wants. And I think that the question of who did Christ die for really touches at our, and tugs at our traditions, does it not? Because we are raised to believe that Christ died for every single person, until when someone tells you no, I think the Bible says this, Christ died for his own. And as we come to this evening, we want to look at another tradition or teaching that we might have that we need to consider in light of other things. And that is, when we talk about the atonement or the death of Christ, we read and we sing that Jesus Christ was a sacrifice for sin. Right? We've used that language that Christ is, is our sacrifice. He's the spotless sacrifice. We tend to think of Christ or use the language of sacrifice in relation to Christ, but what do we mean when we say that Jesus Christ is our sacrifice or he's the sacrifice for his elect or that he is the spotless lamb? What do we mean when we say that? I want to raise uh, that question and consider uh, the the doctrine of Christ's sacrifice this evening and answer, what does it mean when we speak of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? And the doctrine that I want to raise is this, that Christ's sacrifice is a worshipful act to God to satisfy divine justice. Once again, Christ's uh, sacrifice is, is a worshipful act to God to satisfy divine justice. And friends, I will say that again, this also is at the heart of the gospel, is it not? How does Christ satisfy the justice of God? Well, he does that by offering up a sacrifice. So we have to consider now, what does it mean for Christ to make a sacrifice. Let's first answer the question, what is the nature of sacrifice? What is the nature? What do we mean when we say sacrifice? There are many ways in the English language in which we talk about sacrifice. And the most common way in which we speak of sacrifice today is generally in relation to either acts of fortitude or acts of temperance. Acts of fortitude or acts of temperance. Let's consider the first act, and that is the act of fortitude. Fortitude is defined as mental and emotional strength in facing difficulty, adversity, danger, or temptation courageously. Let me give you an example. A man on the battlefield has a grenade in the midst of his unit. And in an act of sacrifice, He saves his unit by jumping on the grenade. A soldier jumping on the grenade to save his unit is an act of fortitude. He's acting courageously. Is he fearful? I'm sure he is. But for the betterment of his unit, he jumps on the grenade, sacrifices himself so that his soldiers will be saved. He courageously sacrifices himself for the good of others. In addition to the act of fortitude, there's also the act of temperance. And temperance simply means restraint. It's an act of sacrifice by uh, holding oneself back. Example, a father in difference with his family denies himself of particular desires that he has in order to fulfill the desires of others. The father really wants that new lawnmower and that new fridge and he just got paid but in an act of temperance what does he do he withholds himself from buying the lawnmower and buying the fridge because if he buys the lawnmower and the fridge what happens there's no food for the week the babies don't have the diapers gas cannot be put in the car so we withhold his desires for what? The betterment and good of his family. He's not jumping on a grenade, but rather he's just restraining himself. Fathers, can I get a loud amen <laughs> if you can testify to any of that? But the father knows that if he buys what he wants, then there won't be food on the table and the bills won't be paid. That's an act of temperance. All these are noble virtues in many ways that are Christ-like. However, they are not in the sense in which Christ offers himself as a sacrifice. So what do we mean? When Christ offers himself on the cross, he's not acting in fortitude, where he jumps on the grenade of God's wrath or anger so that we don't have to. Nor is he acting in temperance, or he's restraining himself for the good of the church. But rather, the sacrifice that Christ offers up is an act of justice. Is an act of justice. Not fortitude, not temperance, but an act of justice. Now, what do we mean when we say a sacrifice of justice? Sort of weird, is it not? Well, if you're a parent, you know quite well of what it means to act justly. As a parent, in what ways do you act justly to your child? How do you show justice to your child? Well, as a parent, you owe your child a safe place to live. As a parent, you owe your child food. As a child, as a parent, you owe your child uh, clothes, protection, medicine, all the things that uh, they need, that they can't get in and of themselves, right? That's what you, you owe to them as their parent. And what does the child owe to you? Well, what is the fifth commandment? Honor, respect, love, all those things. So we owe justice to our children, and children owe justice to us. And with respect to us and God, we as God's creatures have certain duties to God. Just as the parent has duties to their child, the child has duties to the parent, we have duties to God. God. We owe to God a due proportion of all that we have. How do we know that? You're sitting here right now. You know, because it's written in your nature, you are to give to God a due proportion of your all. And one of the ways you do that is by coming to church. You give to God your time. Another way that we see this truth is seen by sacrifice. A sacrifice of justice is a visible sign that is offered to God as testimony of an inward reality of that which is due to God. In other words, God is owed X. He is due this. And out of love for God, and out of the love for the justice of God, I give to God a visible sacrifice. And that visible sacrifice that I lay out ultimately is a demonstration of my heart. Thomas Aquinas says rightly, a sacrifice properly is so called, uh, is, uh, properly so-called is something done for that honor which is properly due to God in order to appease him. And hence, it is that Augustine, now he quotes Augustine, a true sacrifice is every good work in order uh, that we may cling to God in holy fellowship. Saints, this is how we are to think of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. He's not jumping on the grenade of God's wrath. No, he's depriving himself from something, but rather, he's offering to God that which God is due He loves God so much, and he loves the justice of God so much that he offers to God what he properly and rightly deserves. Let's consider the biblical witness of this type of sacrifice. Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. And hear the language here. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This text is one of the most clearest we have of the nature of Christ's sacrifice. In love, Christ offers himself unto God. And how does the Father view the sacrifice of his Son? When the Father sees the Son on the cross, how does the Father look at the Son? Paul says, a fragrant aroma. That's why we say on the cross, there was never a time when the father was more pleased with his son rather than angry with his son. And this type of language should immediately take us back to the Old Testament. When the flood had subsided and everyone and everything had exited the ark, what did Noah do? He built an ark or an altar And there he made a sacrifice on that altar. And Genesis 8.21 tells us, When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Proper worship of God's people results in what? In a pleasing aroma. And God delights in it. When one sacrifices something on the altar... That sacrifice, the smell of it, goes up in the air. And if it's a proper sacrifice, God looks down upon it and delights in it. He says, you have given to me what I rightly deserve. Now we must note that a sacrifice in and of itself is not pleasing to God. Meaning, God doesn't just want a spotless lamb or an innocent bull but rather the pleasure of the aroma that comes in a sacrifice properly made to cleanse and remove the defilement of the people first finds its origins in the heart. The sacrifice that God finds as a pleasing aroma are those sacrifices by those who offer to God that which is properly due to him with a sincere heart. We learned about this this morning, did we not? You can't worship God outwardly and not inwardly. You can't say you love God with your mouth and your words and not also giving to him your heart. The same way with sacrifice. You can't give to God a proper sacrifice outwardly and inwardly, not to be cut to the heart. This is why uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 51, 16 and 17, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I will give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. Now, it's kind of weird, right? Because didn't God institute the sacrificial system? So clearly, he delights in it, and he wants it. But notice, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Again, the sacrifices that God finds delight in are one of proper heart posture, and one that visibly offers to God what he's rightly due. My heart is cut, and I need to give to God what he rightly deserves. God, here is this sacrifice. And if it's a proper sacrifice, it's a pleasing aroma to God. And I would argue that God created man with a natural sense of, of offering to God what is rightly due to him. Meaning this, we tend to say that written on man's heart is the law of God. Meaning that God didn't have to codify or put on tablets of stone the Ten Commandments in order for man to know God's law. But rather, the law of God is written on man's heart. Man knows that thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, that there is only one God. Man knows that, and I would argue also. Had written on man's heart, was offering to God what is due to him by way of a proper sacrifice. Consider with me Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. In the course of time, Cain brought to God an offering. Of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord uh, had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Let me ask you a question Was the Ten Commandments given before Genesis chapter four? No. The Ten Commandments were not given. The sacrificial system was not instituted before Genesis chapter four. And here we see that before God formally instituted the sacrificial system under the Mosaic Covenant that we'll see in Leviticus, at the very early stages of history of the world, men are offering sacrifices to God. Why does Noah, why does Cain and Abel offer a sacrifice to God? Why are they doing that? It doesn't say in the Bible, before those events, that God wants a sacrifice explicitly it's because we owe to god a due proportion of all that we have that is why it is written in our nature to offer to god a sacrifice the apostle paul sums this up best romans 2 14 for when the gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do, these thing, do the things in the law. These, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Natural reason tells mankind that he is subject to a higher being. And because of this, men ought to render to God that which is due to him as a matter of justice. That's what our nature tells us, that there is a God. He does exist. Even though I suppress that knowledge with sin... There is a God, and I owe to him certain things. Augustine, to this God we owe our service, whether in various sacraments or in ourselves, for we are his temple collectively and as individuals. We are created in God's image, and because it is so, we owe our full obedience to him. We owe service to God. And what we see in God establishing the sacrificial system under the Mosaic Covenant is making visible what man already knows by nature. Man already knows that they are to offer to God sacrifices. And what God does under the Mosaic Covenant is making those things explicit. So how does this all relate to Christ and his offering of sacrifice, you might ask? As we already noted, there are two types of sacrifice that men generally think of one of fortitude and one of temperance. And the common way Christians think of Christ's sacrifice is one of fortitude. This is the common way we think of Christ's sacrifice in the church that God is so angry. In heaven, he's just mad. He's steaming, he's been steaming ever since Adam fell. In order to appease and wipe away our sin, Jesus must jump on the grenade of God's wrath. In this view, Christ jumps on the grenade and took this metaphysical, spiritual wrath of the Father on our behalf. On the cross, when Jesus is on the cross, he's crying out, there's some sort of... Metaphysical spiritual wrath that's just that Christ is just absorbing. So as a result, we no longer have an angry God, but now we have a God of love because of what Christ has done. God's angry, Jesus is on the cross, God pours out his wrath on the Son, thereby making God go from anger to love. It is almost as if God had said, for God so hated the world that he sent his only son so that whosoever might believe in him might have eternal life. Friends, I would argue that this is not a faithful representation of the gospel witness. It is not what meant when we say that Christ offers a sacrifice to God. There is nothing pleasing in the aroma of that sort of action and sacrifice. But rather, that which is pleasing to the Father is the love which Christ shows for God in offering his flesh as a demonstration of a perfect, infinite contrition, remorse, on the behalf of all of his own. The sacrifice of Christ is first and foremost a demonstration of Christ's great love of all that God is. John Owen says all which and diverse other words which in part shall be afterward considered, do declare the very same thing which we attend by satisfaction even at taking upon him the whole punishment due to sin and in offering himself doing that which is which God who has offended who was offended uh, was more delighted and pleased with all than he was displeased and offended with all the sins of all those that he had suffered and offered himself for. And hear this, God was more pleased with the obedience, offering, and sacrifice of his son than displeased with the sins and rebellions of the elect. Notice what Owen is saying, that there is not a grenade of God's wrath that Jesus jumps on in order to appease him. In order that God will go from a God of anger to love. But out of love for who God is, Jesus demonstrates how great the justice of God is. As sinners, we infinitely are in debt to God, and we justly deserve a punishment from God. But that doesn't mean that God is angry. But it's just. And on the cross, it is as if Jesus is saying, all the sins of the world are worthy of pain punishment and torment because of the great love i have for you how great and marvelous your justice is it's your you being satisfied and appeased and your justice being upheld is worthy for me it's worth me going through pain and torture and punishment giving to god what is what he properly is owed is worth the sorrow and pain on the cross because Christ offers a sacrifice that is both proper inwardly and proper outwardly and as a result God is pleased with that demonstration of love again Ephesians 5:2 and walk in love just as Christ has also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma God so loves the love which Christ shows for him in his death on the cross. He looks down on the cross and says, Look at my son. Look at his obedience. Because Christ in his death is outwardly demonstrating the value and worth of all that God is, namely his justice. Let me give you an illustration. When a man has sinned against his wife, there are two ways in which a man can get out of the the doghouse, so to speak. Number one, he has to sleep on the couch. Now, why does the man have to sleep on the couch? Well, in many ways, or in a lot of times, it's because he's unrepentant to demonstrate the heinousness of what he's done. Or secondly, to get out of the doghouse, the man offers something which the wife values more than the heinousness of the offense. Now, this doesn't mean that he's trying to buy her back. Like, let me buy you a diamond ring, and then we'll forget about everything. Women are very smart, (laughs) and they know that tactic. But rather, he's truly demonstrating how much he recognizes how he has wronged her, and he wants to demonstrate his love for her. Women know when you're sincere, (laughs) men. And they know when you are truly repentant. And with respect to Christ, Christ doesn't sleep on the couch on our behalf, but offers the perfect and most precious and most valuable thing that can ever be offered to God. And what is that? Himself. That is the value, and that is where the satisfaction of Christ Atonement is found. Christ offers a gift to the justice of God to demonstrate how wicked sin truly is. This is what the prophet Isaiah means when he says in Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And hear this, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Notice, not only does Christ offer his body, Like, here, God, here's the perfect life that I live. But rather, Christ offers his soul as an offering for sin. Body and soul. Outwardly and inwardly. I offer my whole being to you, God. Christ has a knowledge of our sins, friends, on the cross. In fact, I would argue that Christ has a knowledge of our sins better than you have a knowledge of your sin. And he sees the heinousness of our sins and in his human intellect, he is grieved by them. He is cut to the heart and he's grieved by our sin. And out of love for his Father, he gives to God the justice that he properly deserves. God, because we have sinned us, because my people have sinned in Adam. You are due a payment for sin. And in order to uphold your justice, here I am, God. all of me, body and soul. And notice. Isaiah also says he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. I interpret this as Christ on the cross seeing his offspring. What this means is this, on the cross, you and I and every single person whom Christ was dying for was present in the human mind of Christ. Jesus Christ had you in his mind on the cross. He knows us. He knows our sin in his death. And he offers to God a proper and perfect sacrifice. Because ultimately, Christ's sacrifice is a sacrifice of worship. In the death of Christ. Christ is being both the priest, but also the victim of a worshipful Act of sacrifice to God to satisfy divine justice. Notice what I just said. He's not merely the priest who goes on the behalf of his people and offers a sacrifice to God, but also he's the victim. He's the lamb that is offered to God. He's both the priest and the sacrifice in one person. And he loves the justice of God and wants to uphold the justice of God so much because he knows that we cannot do it. And he knows that he's the God man. And if there's anyone that can take away the infinite debt that we owe to God and uphold the infinite justice of God, it would be an infinite person. That is Jesus Christ. In closing, friends, what we have learned, what, we, what, we have learned um, what have we learned, and what are some uses uh, that we can live in light of? Quick summary. First, we learned that Christ's sacrifice is one out of love for the justice of God. Is one out of love for the justice of God. He doesn't jump on the grenade of God's wrath. Now, we're going to get into how we reconcile God's wrath on the cross and all these other things. But it's important to note here what Christ is doing in his sacrifice. That he's aff- uh, offering a sacrifice that's an act of justice. You owe, I owe to you, our, God's people owe this to you, God, and I will give it to you. Christ in his sacrifice offers a perfect act of worship, both inwardly. He sees our sins. He's grieved by them. We read in the Garden of Gethsemane, He does not want to do what he's been commanded to do. He offers the perfect heart of contrition. And outwardly, he's a spotless lamb. Never did anything wrong. And therefore, this sacrifice, when God looks down upon the cross and sees his son, it's a pleasing aroma to him. And thereby satisfies divine justice, the justice that we could not satisfy in of ourselves, Christ satisfies, because He's the God Man. Now, in light of this lesson, how do we live? One quick use. Saint Paul says in Romans twelve one Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul exhorts the Roman Christians to present all of their being as a sacrifice to God. Not a sacrifice that is dead, but a sacrifice that is living. Why? Because now you live in Christ. So therefore, offer, the same way Christ offered himself to God, both body and soul, offer yourselves, not merely when you sin, but also in times when it's 3.30 and you're really tired on Sunday evening and you just ate that hot plate of food, you want to take a nap, but if you know if you take a nap, you might miss church. Offer yourself as a sacrifice to God. Because Christ offers himself as a sacrifice to God. And he does that and he appeases the justice of God. Thereby, what how do we live now? <laughs> well, we thank Christ for what he has done, for doing for us truly what we could not do for ourselves. So, friends, offer yourself as a sacrifice. Just as we have learned this morning, one of the things that we were exhorted to do was consider those things that we are hiding from others, but also from, we think, God. And as Pastor Antonio said, bury them far away and throw away the map so you can't find them no more. And thereby... Live unto Christ wasn't that a great point? die to sin now live unto Christ and the, one of the ways we do that is by offering our living bodies body and soul unto God as a sacrifice of what of worship and when God looks down upon his saints who and his children who Offer that type of sacrifice, it's pleasing to him. That's something he delights in. Let's pray.